Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast from the Western Front Association. I'm Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the First World War and have over 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 18th of September 2017 and this is episode number 32. This week's interview is with author and historian Charles Messenger. In 2013, Charles wrote a fascinating biography, Broken Sword, The Tumultuous Life of General Frank Crozier. He spoke to me from his house in leafy Wimbledon about Crozier. Charles, welcome to the show. I wonder whether we could start by um, you giving us a brief uh, introduction as to your background, interests and involvement in the Great War. Uh, yes, a uh, former regular officer in the Royal Tank Regiment who forsook the sword for the pen. Uh, I've long been interested in the Great War uh, from when I was a small boy. And since leaving the army, um, I have written numerous books, a number on, on the First World War. I also lecture widely, uh, including to... Western Front Association branches, uh, and I'm also a, an occasional battlefield guide, mainly for the British Army. Now, so do, today we're talking about a biography you did uh, in 2013 of Frank Percy Crozier. I wonder whether we, you could start by giving a brief overview of Crozier's early life. Uh, yes, he was born in 1879 in Bermuda. Uh, the son of a regular infantry officer. Uh, he then, family then moved to India, uh, where his father was posted. Uh, and then, as was uh, the case in those days, uh, Frank was sent home at an early age. His parents eventually joined him. He went to the same prep school in Brighton that Winston Churchill attended, albeit earlier. And then, on the advice of uh, a brother officer of Frank's father, a chap called Alex Thornycroft, uh, he was sent to Wellington. Uh, Wellington in those days was very much for the sons of army officers, uh, although there were, uh, it, it, the net had widened and um, the sons of civilians were taken too. Frank's ambition uh, was to follow his army, father into the army. He left Wellington there at just over the age of 16. He doesn't, didn't really shine at school. He then went to Cramer, because in those days, to get to Sandhurst, you had to take an exam. Uh, but he never actually got as far as taking the exam because he was too short. He was only five foot four inches, uh, and it was just half an inch too low for the, the, the minimum entry standard for Sandhurst. So the army was out. He did join the volunteers, uh, one of the... Um, Middlesex battalions, and uh, was a, a stockbroker, an apprentice as such, but didn't like it. And then, as many young men of his age did, uh, in 1898, uh, he went out to Ceylon, as it was called then, now Sri Lanka, to learn how to plant tea. And it was while there that the South African War broke out, and he heard that Alec Thornycroft, the man who had recommended that he go to eat to Wellington, and who, in fact, was very enamoured of Frank's mother, uh, was raising a, an irregular regiment of mounted infantry called Thornycroft's Mounted Infantry. And Frank took boat for South Africa from Ceylon and volunteered to join him and was accepted and fought 
uh, as a mounted infantryman with Thornycross, including the battles of Spion Kop, in June 9, uh, 1900, on Thornycross' recommendation, he did receive a regular commission in the Manchester Regiment and continued for the rest of the year as a mounted infantryman with the Manchesters, but then got rather bored because the main fighting in South Africa was over, and he then volunteered to join the West African Frontier Force um, and sailed straight from South Africa uh, for uh, what is now Nigeria and joined the mounted infantry in the north uh, of the country uh, where there was a, a lot of fighting going on, particularly with the old chieftains, most of them being uh, Muslims, um, and it was a hard, tough time in those days. Uh, disease was very rife. He learnt to drink hard, which was to prove his undoing, but nevertheless uh, got on pretty well. With the, his brother officers called him the bullpup, which probably is uh, <laughs> being small and punchy. But it's really after he leaves... Uh, West Africa that his problems start. So he returns, he leaves West Africa, and then does he come back to Aldershot uh, to, to continue in the army? That's correct, yes. He um, rejoined the Manchesters, eventually joining one of their battalions in the Channel Islands. At the same time, he also got married. Uh, now, she was the daughter uh, of an Indian medical service officer who was actually on the stage, a girl called Ethel, and he had one, he had two weddings. Uh, one was in a registry office, and the reason for this was probably because uh, Ethel was not yet 21 and she didn't have her parents' consent. But then uh, it, 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 she did become 21 and he had a very smart wedding with her in London. The problem was, there's no doubt he had taken to drink in a big way, and so did she. He, uh, there were b bouncing checks and not paying paid uh, tradesmen, and eventually he was made to resign his commission. And this was in spite of the fact that um, his grandfather had left him quite a substantial sum of money. And how did he lose all that money? Did he just blow it on drink and, and good living, so to say? It just seems on it just seems on good living, uh, and I think Ethel too had expensive tastes. But he he manages, having resigned his commission in the regular army, uh, he 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 obtained a commission in the special reserve, which had just been formed from the old militia, and as a, a captain in the in the loyals. But it, the same problem happened. He was bouncing checks. He was got into the hands of money lenders, and eventually he was he was made bankrupt. And so that was the end of his. Uh, Soldiering, or so it seemed. So this is this is about 1906, 1907. Uh, no, we're really talking about 1909. Um, and then, then I think he leaves the country. Yes, he goes to try and make a fresh start for himself, taking Ethel with him to Canada, which again was opening up, particularly Western Canada at the time. And he had thoughts of becoming a farmer, but he was still drinking very heavily. The farming didn't work out, but he. After one very heavy night uh, in Winnipeg, where he was living at the time, he woke up and instead of having hair of a dog, asked for a cup of coffee and felt surprisingly better. And that was the last time he touched alcohol in his life. 
He also, he and Ethel also had a child in Winnipeg, a girl called Mary. He sent mother and child back home in 1911, but he continued on working as a labourer for the extension of the, the telegraph and, uh, and telephone cables into Western Canada. But again, uh, he was broke, and I suspect the family... Um, gave him the necessary money to get him back to England. But he actually, did he end up in, in Ireland um, uh, on, on his return? Yes, he'd, he'd spent part of his childhood in Ireland. He had Irish aunts and he became very, by this time it's 1912 and the home rule uh, for Ireland is very much the talking point of the moment with Asquith's Liberal government uh, threatening to give Ireland home rule, but of course in the north of Ireland, in Ulster, there were, were, there were strong objections, particularly on religious grounds, and eventually uh, Frank went out to join what was called the Ulster Volunteer Force, which was a, a paramilitary force raised by the Ulster Protestant to fight the British if Ulster should be made part of a new independent Ireland. And he joined what was called the Special Service Section of the West Belfast Battalion of the UVF. And he, he was one of the few officers actually in the UVF who was actually paid. So that's how he survived financially. But basically, they had to be ready 24 hours a day and armed in case of an alert when they'd be called, they would be the first for the UVF to be called out. And uh, he led, I think, quite an exciting time, having to be undercover the whole time. But anyway, uh, war in August 1914 came before the Home Rule question could be resolved. Now, he is in, instrumental in, or certainly engaged in, forming the, the 36 Ulster Division, which obviously was drawn from a largely loyalist Protestant community around Belfast. Well, yes, funny enough, not initially. I mean, we've got... Uh, it's worth me saying a couple more things about Prozier's character. Uh, basically, uh, that he he is a liar. And one of the reasons is that he was already, at this time, wearing medals to which he was not entitled. For instance, the, uh, the King South Africa medal. And he wasn't in South Africa after 1900, and so was not entitled to it, and other medals as well. He claimed to have a reserve, uh, a militia commission in the Canadian Army, and actually got himself recorded uh, with the Canadian High Commission as being a retired Canadian officer. And hence, he managed to get himself a commission in August 1914, uh, through stating that he was on the, the reserve of officers for Canada. And was initially commissioned, commissioned into the Fifth Royal Irish Fusiliers. Well, they were down in Dublin at the time, uh, and at the same time, what became the 36 Ulster Division was being formed, as you say, uh, from Protestants. Not all UVF, because a lot of UVF members were actually army reservists of being called up anyway, uh, but certainly quite a degree uh, of UVF people, and it was Hence, Crozier found himself as second in command of what had been the West Belfast Battalion, but was now the Ninth Royal Irish Rifle. So he's he's he becomes is it was he appointed as a lieutenant colonel or major? 
Yeah, he was he was appointed um, second in command, uh, major and second in command. Uh, there was a dugout officer, a retired officer, who was brought in to command, a chap called Barnard, uh, who was a good 25 years Frank senior in age, uh, but they appear to have got on pretty well. And he, Frank was really in charge of training, um, and because he had, having had active service experience, both in South Africa and West Africa, uh, he did actually know his stuff when he came to training. His his CEO was very happy to just let him get on with it. Now, if I'm correct, a lot of the officers are, who were appointed as commission officers from various bits of the UVF, many of them actually were eventually dismissed because of, on grounds of incompetence or unsuitability. But obviously, Frank's an exception to this rule, actually having uh, military experience in the past. Uh Yes, but I, uh, a lot of the a lot of the officers in the Ninth Royal Irish Rifles were in fact UVF people with no military experience at all. But and some of them were weeded, but it was more actually in the sort of senior ranks of the division, uh, amongst the brigade commanders and commanding officers that there was weeding out. Although this didn't really happen until uh, the the division got France. And that was in 1915, um, it yes, arrived. in the autumn of 1915. And then they were obviously taken to the, the Somme sector in preparation for the, the, the first the 1st of July, which obviously we know well in terms of the Ulster Tower and the, the role of the 36th Ulster Division. So what, what happens in France with Frank? Well, Frank uh, goes to France as, yeah, still as second in command of the, the 9th Royal Irish Rifles, uh, which is probably has the worst discipline record of any battalion in the division. Um, the, the brigade in which it's in, 107 Brigade, uh, in the, after Loos, uh, the Battle of Loos, because it was felt that a lot of the new army divisions were ill-trained and needed toughening up a bit, there was an exchange of new army brigades with regular brigades from regular divisions. And the 107 Brigade found itself with 4th Division, sent there by the GOC of the division, uh, Oliver Nugent, uh, who was very happy to get rid of the brigade for a time. But the brigade actually really sharpened up under 4th Division and didn't. it was only going to be temporary, uh, the exchange. And when it was returned... Uh, in the spring of 1916 to 36th Division, a lot of the guys in the brigade didn't want to go back to 36th uh, Div. Um, they'd much preferred to stay with the regulars. But Frank himself, uh, Colonel Barnard, um, was invalided home, as one of the things that happened to a lot of the sort of dugouts who were brought back into service. They just couldn't cope with, with the conditions. And he was promoted to command the, the Royal Irish Rifles and, of course, led them on the 1st of July. Uh, he disobeyed orders. He was told there were strict orders from the divisional commander that uh, commanding officers should stay in their headquarters dugout so that they were in communication uh, with, with brigade headquarters. Frank and a fellow commanding officer thought this was uh, ridiculous because it, uh, seconding commands had been left out of battle. This is a policy which was really introduced on the 1st of July 
say that there was a carder on which uh, a battalion could be rebuilt if it suffered heavy casualties. Frank, therefore, the 9th Royal Irish Rifles were in support of 107's attack uh, uh, at Tietval, but he wanted to see his battalion off and went forward from his dugout and noticed that actually from Tietval village there was heavy machine gun fire, enfilade fire, which was causing his and the other support battalion casualties. And so he said, right, and he sent his guys forward long before they should have done, which was actually the right thing to do, because it did, they reinforced uh, the attacking troops just in time, and this really enabled uh, the division to capture the Schwaben Redoubt. Frank himself then went back to his headquarters and uh, left one of his company commanders uh, in charge in the Schwaben Redoubt. Though after that, obviously, the 36th Ulster Division was forced back from the Schwaben or Schwaben Redoubt to where they started and obviously suffered significant casualties. So what happens to Frank during the rest of the Somme? Does he remain with the 36th Ulster Division? Yes, he, he, he did, but the, the division actually doesn't go back into the Somme. It's, it's pulled, it, it, it's moved north, really, because its casualties were so heavy uh, and, and uh, reinforcements were a bit more difficult because there was no conscription in Ireland, so they were still reliant on volunteers. But in November 1916, uh, Frank's... Um, prowess as commanding officer is recognised and he was promoted to Brigadier General uh, and took over command of a brigade, 119 Brigade, in 40th Division, a new army division. In command of the um, obviously battalion and brigade, did he have a reputation for being, being very strict? I recall somewhere that he was a great advocate of the death penalty in, in terms of, of creating a degree of deterrence. Uh, yes, I mean he was a he he was a stickler for discipline, no doubt about it. And he 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 made himself pretty unpopular in some quarters. But as, with regard to the death penalty, there is of course the uh, uh, classic story of what happened to his namesake, Rifleman James Crozier, who was one of his uh, soldiers in the Ninth or Irish Rifles, who who did. Uh, did desert, and Frank did support him having the death sentence. What annoyed him was, was that one of his officers had also deserted, uh, and this officer, through connections, was not even court-martial, was merely quietly sent back to England. Uh, and this made Frank very angry indeed. But in, in his uh, new brigade, 119 Brigade, which was actually a brigade of Welsh bantams, i.e., small guys who were under the minimum height, so perhaps they had a suitable brigade commander who was the same size as they were. Uh, <clears throat> and he showed himself pretty ruthless here, uh, particularly when it came to uh, his commanding officers, and he he, uh, he sacked a lot of commanding officers under him until he found the right, the right team. Uh, none of them were regular officers. Two uh, had seen service in the South African War, uh, as uh, volunteers, um, a third was a, had had no uh, military experience prior to 1914 at all. He was a lecturer at the London School of Economics, and the fourth, a man called William Plunkett, <coughs> a man called William Plunkett, um, <coughs> was actually a band boy 
at the start of his army service, rose to RSM in the Royal, in the Royal Irish Fusiliers, was, won the Distinguished Conduct Medal, uh, and then a military cross was commissioned and would end, end the war with also with three DSOs, a remarkable character. And these four commanding officers, none of them are regular, all sort of um, unusual, and they and Frank worked very well together. And did they see service until the end of the war in 119 Brigade? He, uh, Frank did, yes. Uh, he lost um, one of his commanding officers, <clears throat> the one who taught at LSE, was killed uh, during the Battle of Combray, and another one of them wounded, and Plunkett was also wounded, but he actually got Plunkett back to his brigade before the end of the war. But otherwise, there was, there was, there was quite a turnover um, of commanding officers. Interestingly, one of them who was sent to him to command one of his battalions had actually been in the Manchester's and was a year younger uh, than Frank, and also been in the West African Frontier Force, albeit after Frank's time. And he only, he was appeared on paper to be a perfectly competent guy. But one suspects that Frank got rid of him because he knew too much about Frank's past. So this brings us to, to the end of the war. Now, what, what happens in 1919? Well, Frank has done pretty well by the war, uh, by the end of the war. He... He has earned the. He's been made a CB, a CMG, uh, and won the DSO, and was six times mentioned in dispatches, and was also awarded a Croix de Guerre by the French. The problem is that by this time, the military secretary's branch uh, in the War Office has caught up with him. In fact, they caught up with him in 1915, and if they'd known, um, it was the Frank Crozier whom they got rid of before the war, uh, they would have never allowed him to be an officer in 1914. But anyway, Frank, having had a very good war record and done well and proved himself a first-class fighting soldier, there was no way that the army was going to keep him on after the war. Uh, and so he, when he asked to stay on, he's told, sorry, chum, no, and you know why. So it's, it happens. He tries uh, one or two other jobs uh, to serve with the newly created Palestine police, um, for instance, but nothing comes to them. And then he's out in Paris uh, at the time of the signing of the Versailles Treaty to receive his, his Croix de Guerre when he <clears throat> uh, somehow meets the Lithuanian delegation to the peace conference. Um, now, Lithuania, because it's just regained its independence after, uh, after a good 200 years, uh, having been under the Russian dominance. And in Eastern Europe, because in the Baltic states, there's absolute chaos in 1919. You're having, you've got the civil war, um, the Russian civil war going on, you, the Bolsheviks. You've got Ger German free corps um, fighting to retain, particularly to protect East Prussia. Uh, you've got the Poles also uh, <coughs> fighting the Russians and anyone else, including the Lithuanians. And the Lithuanians uh, are forming an army, but uh, desperately need some sort of modern advice on how to equip it and train it. 
And so Frank gets himself a job as the Inspector General of the Lithuanian Army and is allowed to choose uh, a team of officers to go out to Lithuania with him. And one of the great things about it is he manages to con the Lithuanian government to paying him and his officers uh, at British rates and he uh, to be paid as a, 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 as a British Major General. Um, so money-wise, he's okay. And although he's had a sort of pretty, um, his wife's still drinking heavily, and in fact, at least twice during the First World War, she's had up and caught for being drunk and disorderly. Mary, his elder daughter, stays with her, but he has a younger daughter who was born in 1914, um, whom virtually from birth um, never sees anything of her mother. Uh, and is sent to live with uh, Frank's mother and uh, his stepfather, who is the self-same Alec Thornycroft, who had A, got him into Wellington, and B, got him a regular commission. But Ethel and Mary did go out to Lithuania with him. Uh, it was not a success. The officers Frank chose were uh, a pretty, apart from his chief of staff, a chap called Anthony Muirhead, who'd been his brigade major uh, in the last months of the war and was a good good egg and ended up as a junior minister um, in the late 1930s. Uh, but the rest of them were a pretty dodgy lot and there were complaints about their behaviour. The Lithuanians um, realised that they could simply could not afford to pay uh, Frank and his officers the rates they, they were being paid. I mean, Frank was getting paid ten times more uh, than the chief of the Lithuanian army. And so eventually uh, they were invited to leave. Um, and so Frank was now back in England and uh, without a job and, as usual, without any money because he was never any good at keeping it. Now, the next bit of his career is very interesting. He, he, he actually uh, gets command of another load of, quotes dodgy officers in terms of the auxiliary division of the Royal Irish Constabulary. And uh, listeners might recall Paul O'Brien's podcast on that on the 18th of, set of July, where we talked about the auxiliaries. So, Charles, for the benefit of our listeners, who are the auxiliary division of the Royal Irish Constabulary? Well, they were, um, they were a bunch of mainly ex-officers of the British Army uh, who were formed really to give the Royal Irish Constabulary, to give it an offensive arm. The Royal Irish Constabulary had suffered from really from early 1919 when the Irish troubles really broke out and became violent. They had suffered at the hands of the IRA, were suffering, uh, and particularly their, uh, what they called their barracks, was probably you know, what we would call a police station, but they were called barracks in Ireland, uh, often being under attack. Uh, and they took quite a lot of casualties. And it was felt that in order to combat the IRA, a, a band, an irregular, if you like, band was needed that was actually going to take the war to the IRA. Remember, because the, the British Army was in Ireland, but uh, this this was a conventional, unconventional warfare was needed, not, not the conventional tactics that the army was. Um, and so hence the auxiliaries were formed, and it was mainly, uh, the guy mainly behind it was General Tudor, who'd been brought in as, the, as police advisor to the Royal Irish Constabulary, um, a gunner with a distinguished uh, 
uh, war record, commanded the 9th Scottish Division uh, with great success. Uh, and it was he who really drove this idea forward. And Crozier had met him during the war and, and knew him and ran across him in London. And Tudor told him about his idea and Crozier said, please, can I join? And, and Tudor said, fine. Crozier liked to claim that he had actually formed the auxiliaries himself, which was which was rubbish. Um, he he joined a good three weeks after they had been formed. Um, when he did join, the, the first batches were already in Ireland. But what he did do on arrival uh, was actually to try and get some order. Uh, very chaotic. Um, these guys didn't know what didn't know what they were doing. They were paid very well a day, a, a pound a day they were paid, which was uh, a good sum for many of them. And um, they were eventually formed into companies. And the first two companies, Crozier commanded one and then was promoted to command as more companies were uh, created. He was promoted to actually command the auxiliaries himself. But he, this was very much he was very much subordinate to General Tudor, the police advisor. And the auxiliaries, certainly in Ireland, have a have a reputation for committing a, a large number of, of atrocities and outrages, such as the burning of Cork uh, and and participating in the the killing of a number of of Irish spectators at Croke Park. Um, so, what's he doing in the face of all this uh, of chaos and and certainly the force being certainly operating outside the bounds of of the law? Well. Crozier does his best. Well, what he thinks in his eyes is his best. One of his main problems is that the um, auxiliary companies are scattered all over Ireland. Uh, He has his headquarters in Dublin, but it's very difficult to keep control of all these individual companies who rather tend to go their own way. What he fails to do, however, is actually a lot of the time they are working with the army. Um, the auxiliary companies, but there is no evidence that Crozier actually went and liaised himself with the army commanders to ensure that to ensure that the, the auxes under their operational control behaved themselves. And the army was constantly complaining that you know, whereas the auxes were quite useful to have, particularly sort of carrying out strikes on IRA bases and, and laying ambushes, etc. Uh, they were very difficult to control. Uh, Crozier does go out on occasion and and um, and inspect them, um, and particularly after some of uh, the odd atrocity. But um, he never really exercises, uh, uh, keeps them on t- on a tight enough rein. And in particular, I mean, the finances of the auxiliary division uh, got into an appalling state with the company commanders sort of spending public money at will. Uh, And in fact, one of the company commanders was one of uh, Crozier's favoured battalion commanders um, from the war, a chap called Richard Andrews. Now, it's discovered after Crozier's left that this guy has sort of bought things like um, a grandfather clock, which he thought would be nice to have in his company base, spending public money on food and drink to his men when they were supposed to be out on operations, all sorts of irregularities like that. And of course, things come to, an he- come to a head in February 
1920, when after the auxiliaries had actually looted a grocery store, funny enough, run by unionists, and Crozier goes up, attempts to sack half the company, and then has to go across to England, because he's unveiling a memorial in Wales to one of his battalions. And um, Tudor then steps in and says, you can't, it's against the rules for you merely to sack these people without my say-so. Uh, an enormous row blows up. Crozier resigns from the auxiliaries. A letter is sent to the Times, which Crozier said was done by his adjutant, but I suspect it's probably Crozier himself, uh, which actually stated what, he, what he'd done. Um, there are questions in the House of Parliament, and the thing drags on and on, and Crozier merely becomes a thorn in the establishment. He, do, he, he does get a little money in his time in Ireland, but again, he's on his uppers again. No money. And by, he's also got another wife. Um, Ethel died eventually from drink uh, ten days after Crozier arrived in Ireland. But Crozier arrived in Ireland with another woman uh, called Grace Roberts, who claimed to be a relation to Field Marshal Lord Roberts, which is total rubbish, she wasn't, um, and with his elder daughter, Mary. Um, he says they were actually in one of the houses um, which was uh, in, in which lived two of the intelligence officers who were shot dead by the IRA on that same bloody Sunday as the Croke Massacre, the Croke Park Massacre. Um, whether that's so or not, haven't been able to establish. But anyway, he he spends um, really a lot of the time complaining to the government. Uh, matters are aggravated by the fact that in 1924, um, a book is published um, by a woman who's a sort of political hostess, and it's thumbnail sketches of uh, people of our time, as it was called, and one of them was a, a sketch of Tudor, in which Crozier is mentioned, um, and what becomes clear is this woman had managed to get copies of documents that were in actually in uh, Crozier's personal file at the War Office. Um, he sues her, uh, but all he gets out of it is £30 damages, um, and he carries on pursuing the question of this document, um, which is really a synopsis of his career, um, that had been leaked to her. Um, we don't quite know the circumstances, uh, but really gets nowhere. And so, and again, um, mid-1920s, he's starting to bounce more checks, he's leaving... Uh, rent unpaid at various flats he and uh, Grace have stayed in. And so for the second time in his life, he's declared bankrupt. Now, but also, along with his bankruptcy, he, he seems to have a, a Damascene conversion to um, the League of Nations and becomes a, a pacifist and also becomes a founding member of the Peace Pledge Union. What brought about this conversion? Uh, I think it starts off with, uh, as... Really, as a way of getting getting back uh, at the authorities, um, he starts to sort of become 
advocate uh, disarmament. <coughs> he tries to get a permanent job with the League of Nations in Geneva, but that doesn't uh, come about. So he becomes a speaker for the League of Nations Union, which is really the sort of shop window um, and, the, <coughs> and the sort of propaganda for, for the League, and goes around the country making speeches. But really what brings on, um, brings on his pacifism uh, is two, two things. The first one is that he becomes more and more aware of the potency of air power, how, because air power increasingly has the ability to overfly ground defences and, and attack at the, heart of, at the heart of a nation, its capital, its industry, its people. And he feels that this is going to make war more likely in, in the future rather than less likely. And the other uh, factor is a more personal one. He comes across a guy who actually find, finds the Peace Pledge Union, uh, the Reverend Dick Shepherd, uh, who was the vicar of St. Martin's in the Fields in Trafalgar Square, uh, who had gone out to France as a chaplain in 1914 and spent a year at one of the, one of the base hospitals and been so horrified and appalled by the uh, the state of the, the wounded and their their injuries that he became uh, a pacifist uh, really during the war and there's no doubt he he and Frank and Grace uh, Frank's second wife hit it off immediately and Frank became uh, a total convert um, <clears throat> and 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 really one of the, the driving forces behind behind the the foundation of the peace pledge union so what happens to frank's um final part of his life from about late 20s to his death in 1937 well in in some ways it's a bit tragic certainly he's constantly has no money and probably the one person that does sort of save him uh is uh, uh david starrett who had been his batman in France uh, throughout his time on the Western Front. And Starrett um, actually became a very successful builder in Kent um, and built lots of sort of very nice neo-geo estates. And he allowed Frank to live, live rent-free in some of his houses. Frank also managed to get money, he starts to write, first of all, for a, for a boy's comic. And then in 1930, he publishes what really is his most famous book, A Brass Hat in No Man's Land, which I think quite a number of people have heard of and some read, which is certainly an unusual account, personal account of the war on the Western Front. And actually makes him quite a lot of money, although it continues to ruffle feathers. Uh, he publishes further books on his experiences in South Africa, uh, in West Africa. Uh, he publishes an autobiography, which actually uh, is truer than one might expect, given the fact you know he, he is a bit of a liar. And finally, he ends up uh, published at the time of his death in 1937 with this diatribe called, diatribe called The Men I Killed, 
which is which is really sort of so over the top. I mean, a classic. One of the classic things he states in it was that his brigade during the German offensive on the Lys in April 1918, and they happened to be next door to the Portuguese. And the Portuguese, of course, broke, and Frank claimed that his men, you know, fired into the fleeing Portuguese. Well, actually, if you analyse it. Uh, that is probably not what happened at all. The fact is, it was fog. The Portuguese uniform was quite like the German in colour, uh, and Frank's men saw these guys running towards them, and it was shoot first, ask questions afterwards. But nevertheless, it did ruffle feathers in the Portuguese government, and the British ambassador had to apologise. So, OK, he managed to make a bit out of his writing, but uh, he, interestingly, handed over the... the um, the rights to his books for a time to David Starrett, I think in, in return for in return for money uh, to keep him going. And Starrett did actually sort of return the rights. In terms of his children, well, Mary got very fed up. And of course, she'd been born in Canada in 1930. She, she emigrates to Canada and remains there, marries happily and has six children, becomes a teacher, has six children, has a very happy life. But Frank would never correspond with her. He felt that he, she had betrayed him. Hester, his younger daughter, who was brought up initially by, initially by Frank's mother and stepfather, and then when they passed on by Frank's um, sister and her husband, and she, she and Grace were left absolutely penniless at Frank's death, and they managed to get a small grant from an ex-service charity, but uh, really, they really had nothing at all. Um, and Hester actually even lived to the ripe old, lived well into her 90s, um, and she actually changed her name from Crazier because she, she uh, abhorred her father so much. He, he was an oddball. Uh, there is no doubt about it. Um, he was an excellent fighting soldier, and I think everyone would agree to that. But otherwise, in his, pri uh, in his private life, he was a rogue, apart from his belief in pacifism, which I believe was genuine. Charles, thank you very much for your time. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Butterworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth, performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time...